Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 72, January 2024. The Word, an elusive concept. A conversation with Victor Boucher. Hello, Paul Meyer here. Happy New Year, 2024, the seventh year of this podcast. What a privilege it is to talk to so many experts and leaders in their field. The more I learn, the more I learn how little I know. First, a big thank you to all who donated to IDEA on Giving Tuesday. And if you bought a copy of my Accents and Dialects for stage and screen during the holiday sale, thank you too. The sale continues until January 5th, so you haven't missed your chance. Get the same discount either at paulmeyer.com for the printed version and on your iTunes account if you prefer the iTunes ebook Apple Book version. After my last podcast but one, episode number 70 on American English in Colonial Times, Stephen from Orlando, Florida, wrote to ask, Do you believe the non-roticism and other characteristics of the nascent RP accent that remained in some areas of the States is a result of the Royalists during the Revolutionary War maintaining their allegiance to the Crown? In case you aren't familiar with that technical term, non-roticism is when the R of burn, barn, born, letter, mother, etc. isn't sounded. Burn, barn, born, mother, letter, etc. Karen Burgos, the expert on that podcast, responded as follows. Quote, Some areas with persistent non-roticism, such as the southern coastal states, did have cultural loyalties to England even as they took part in the revolution. Many sons of upper-class South Carolinians were sent to English universities for their studies, for example. This may not be the case everywhere. The evidence seems to suggest that New England's non-roticism developed relatively early on, and this region continued to be non-rhotic for a very long time. New England was one of the hotbeds of dissatisfaction against the Crown. They just had this phonological development, likely inherited from some earlier settlers, and it continued to spread and maintain itself. For the most part, I'm inclined to think most American areas with non-rhotic accents didn't keep them as a royalist signal. I do think England continued to be culturally and intellectually significant for the colonists, so American children sent to study in England may have wanted to signal their sophistication and worldliness. End quote. I hope that helps, Stephen, and thanks, Karen, for that well-considered response. Now, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the Idea Archive and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. So I had a story, right? From a kind of force days. Right? So we're talking about like five or six years ago, right? When I was like a uh, Lance Corporal coming up in Cadet Force Way Dan Boys. I was saying your boy had to be a badass to make your name now to get Lance Corporal. So anyway, I never tell this story before though. You ever heard this one before? Yeah. Now back in the day First battalion and second battalion do, they do, they do cross. You see what I'm saying? They do mesh. You see what I'm saying? It's real rab. So here all going on. So what do you think? Perhaps you guessed the Caribbean? But if you narrowed it down to Trinidad, congratulations. It was Ideas Trinidad 6, contributed by senior editor Dylan Paul. To learn more about the speaker, go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com then Caribbean, then Trinidad. 
Thank you again, Dylan. Now, this month's challenge. Where did the speaker spend her formative years? I've silenced a clue she gives in her narrative in case you wonder about that two-second silence. A lot of berry picking for winter. We used to go into in the fall time after the canners and things closed and we used to uh, pick what you called negun. the little uh, berries that kind of go off the ground like strawberries and uh, they kind of look like salmon berries but they're red, real deep red and real a taste all its own. You don't you can't get those in. What's your guess? Get the answer next time. Oh yes, remember, if you aren't listening to me on paulmeyer.com, switch over now. Select In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services menu tab, then click episode number 72. You'll find extras there, not available on any other podcast channel. My guest this month is Victor Boucher, Professor of Linguistics at the University of Montreal. Université de Montréal. So welcome, Victor. Welcome to In a Manner of Speaking. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Oh, my pleasure. You have an amazingly broad and fascinating research agenda. Uh It'll be very interesting to fans of this podcast. Can you briefly summarize your research agenda? I'm basically a speech scientist specializing in sensory motor aspects of speech worked on speech units for over 30 years. Mm. And I've taught speech sciences and phonetics, speech and language disorders, French departments, and uh, linguistics. Amazing. Wonderful. Very broad, very varied, and uh, very pertinent to the listeners for this podcast. So as you know, Victor, for last month's podcast, I was looking for an authority on the rise of silent reading. Just to recap, this has to do with the effect that Eliminating spaces between words had on the reading habits of the ancient Romans and Greeks and on other languages. Texts that were written unseparated, scriptura continua, as it's known. Turned out this wasn't exactly your field, Victor, but you led me to Paul Sanger happily and uh, last month's delightful conversation with him. But one of your areas of research has to do with chunking. What a nice and decidedly unlatinate term that is chunking. So give us the non-linguist's account of what chunking is as it applies to speech. Chunking is this all-encompassing term. The thing about spaces and letters and words, these are units of writing. You have to realize that from the start. They're not speech units. If you ask people who do not know how to write, how they chunk speech or how they divide speech they can't divide things like letters or and they're very inconsistent in dividing words and sentences but they can count syllables and typically divide speech into chunks which have sensory marks and signals contrary to uh, units like letters and words and sentences have no defining marks and that's understandable because if you take any ordinary utterance, it's very difficult, in fact, in continuous speech to divide words. If I take any sentence, for instance, you shouldn't have done that. Well, how many words are there in you shouldn't have? And there's a vast body of work now that's accumulating, and especially in the area of language acquisition, 
They have various terms to designate these multisyllabic units. Some call them constructions, others formulas or multisyllabic chunks. But there's a consensus, though, that's building on these units. And so what are these chunks and how do they apply to speech? Well, I guess, first off, one has to realize that speech is not writing. Speech involves modulating air pressure. We produce sequences of motions that create sounds for communicative purposes. So all spoken languages involve sequences of motions that produce sounds, create structures and units. So my focus for the last 30 years has been defining these units, one of which is chunks, but there are other units like motion units that give rise to syllables and breath units that give rise to utterances. Mm. On the question of chunking, though, chunking is central. It's probably best explained by Terrace. That's T-E-R-R-A-C-E. He defined a type of sensory motor chunking, which is the domain general process that applies to all behaviors that require memory of motor sequences. And he reviewed close to 100 years of research on sequence memory in humans and non-humans. And these units have marks, and they're also marks in speech that reflect this type of sensory motor chunking. And a very practical example of this is when we recite a series of numbers from memory. If I give you a sequence of numbers and I ask you to repeat, say, three, five, four, six, oh, one, nine. Now, the first time you will repeat them, you will create chunks, something like three, four, five, six, oh, one, nine. And this chunking applies on the fly. So the first time you hear them, you recite them by chunking. So terrorists call this input chunking, hmm. which formats output chunking, because once you've recited these numbers, you store them in long-term memory. When you hear speech, you call upon these units, and you also detect chunk marks, sensory marks of chunking. Mm. This is infinitely applicable to learning language, dialects, and speech and language disorders. Is this why when we speak, as opposed to read a text aloud, we pause in odd places, we don't obey the punctuation, and perhaps the phrases are shorter, as opposed to reading a prepared text where you pause nicely at the punctuation marks and you have a nice, complete, grammatically complete sentence. We're getting at the difference between speech and writing, aren't we here? Absolutely. But it wasn't always the case that there was that distance. Reading originally was, you probably know this, that it, this was a practice out loud. You, you know, you read text out loud. It, was, it wasn't a private or silent activity. Yes, this is what Paul Sanger was talking about last month. Yes, exactly. We've lost track of this history that, you know, everybody knows what a sentence is. Yes, punctuation marks. But the fact is, Punctuation was introduced essentially for breath pauses. We've lost track of this. 
all writing systems were invented by people who knew that writing exists, well, they were all syllabaries. So this was a little, a little bit closer to what actual speech units are. But the chunking part also creates rhythm, but it's not linked to things like stress. It's linked to actually constraints on this short-term memory or input chunking that Terrace described. Mm. This is a buffering of sequence. One has to remember that when we hear speech, it's not like text. These are sounds that disappear. They unfold over time. So if you have a sentence, not a sentence, but an utterance, and something like, you want a piece of pie. Well, by the time you hear pie, all the other sounds have disappeared. So if you want to interpret correctly an utterance, you have to have memory of, do you want a piece of pie? At the time you hear pie, you have to have the rest of the utterance in mind. So we underestimate, because we tend to look at language through writing, that these are sounds, and the sounds are ephemeral events. Yes, I understand completely. Yes, yes. I work with clients whose first language isn't English, actors and non-actors. Many of them want to improve their pronunciation of English. What many of them have in common is that their spoken English has a sort of one-word-at-a-time quality, uh, Exactement comme moi quand j'essaie de parler français, exactly like me when I speak French. So what I'm teaching them without using the term perhaps is chunking. Is 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 that is that right? And and of course the English stress timed rhythm. Your reference to stress, it's an all-encompassing aspect of English. And if you're learning French, well, French has no stress. Stress is very structuring, but so are chunks. And yes. if you don't have a rhythm based on stress, then you are chunking, and you're chunking in English as well. Your intuition is good to refer to these global variables like stress. I'd like to really know how you go from Midwest American English to Cockney, for example. Okay? Yeah. So yeah. There, there are all-encompassing variables. And that's basic my experience, is when you're going from English to French or French to English, there are these aspects like stress. Paul, the idea of stress, we tend to just lump things together, but the stress of English is very different from that of, say, Italian. Pomidoro. <laughs> Pomidoro is not the same stress as an Italian. It's not the same as an English. English stress is quite strong, and it's structuring. And the best way to exemplify this, if you, if you take very simple sequences, if you're going to say one word at a time, yeah, most people, you know, second language learners, do that and uh, it's not bad because they have to practice individual sounds syllables but when they put them together it's, it's it just doesn't sound french it's uh, and so a train wreck isn't it when they do that yeah <laughs> it's a train wreck and what are you going to do when yeah you put them together and say do you want a piece of pie 
if you're going to speak word by word, then what what do you do with do you want a do you want a piece of pie? When you hear that type of sentence, how do you break that down into words? It's very very difficult. Yes. If you ask a French speaker, for example, to say today, as in today's menu, okay, he will say today's menu as if it was a menu for two days. <laughs> yes, right. English, if you have long words, what happens with things like communication? Okay, communication. That's right. Well, communication, everything's centralized, and the first com is almost the vowel is almost gone. Yes. So what you have is com that's the only vowel that because it's stressed, the only one that, that, that survives. Yes. Yeah. And everything else is centralized. Teaching those English as a second language clients of mine, getting them to embrace the schwa in the unstressed syllables is is, is key to getting to sound more native. If they're French speakers, they don't have this powerful stress in English. So you can end up with communication. Mm -hmm. Communication. All the vowels are there. All the, pure vowels, no schwas, right? The schwas, you get when you have these all-encompassing variables, then you get things like gonna, shoulda, coulda. It has enormous morphological influence on language. How did we go from I'm going to to I'm gonna? <laughs> mm -hmm. These are and it's essentially an effect of stress. So there's some global, whenever you teach and you probably know this intuitively when you teach a dialect or a language there's one encompassing variable that will characterize the speech and you basically hone in on this one variable and if you're moving and i would suggest the french speakers or any speakers who are trying to learn english to focus on stress because it's one of the salient markers of this language Yes. Yeah. 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 Those clients we're talking about, they have a hard time believing that abandoning their efforts to speak every word distinctly and separately will actually make their English more like the native speakers they are emulating. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but perhaps this, true, this is true for English speakers learning French, perhaps for anyone learning a new language. You've got to start chunking and not respecting equally every every single word. Yes. The most intriguing thing I've learned from you so far, um, from reading uh, some of your writings, is that there's no consensus among linguists about how to define the concept word at, at all. It's amazing. And so I've been doing a podcast on the spoken word, and now I find out that the experts <laughs> can't agree on what a word actually is. So, so Victor, why can't linguists, uh, you've hinted at this already, but you know, why can't linguists agree on what seems so obvious to the rest of us? It's obvious because you know how to write, and once you get down to speech, you have another series of units which are not well known. But I want to clarify a myth. Linguists do not work on speech or spoken language. They work on transcripts and always have. They're not speech scientists. Linguists, as a field, in fact, developed at a time when the only technology available to observe speech was writing. Yeah. And you can imagine a tool like the chemograph, which was invented uh, late 
19th century. What's the technology the first, again? I, did, I missed the word. The chemograph, basically, it's a way of visualizing sound waves, okay? You could, or various other ways, but we can, we have this at our fingertip, and, you know, we've all seen these sound waves, what they look like. But the people back then, can you imagine the surprise that, oh, geez, we can't separate letters. Uh, yes. There are no spaces or pauses between words. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but yes. that's the thing. Today, we've gone beyond just representing sound waves. We can see how the brain is processing speech. And there is a hell of a problem, and it's coming to a head. Neuroscientists call it the mapping problem. What is the mapping problem? Well, the units that they have identified, neural processing units of speech, don't match linguistic units. The units that I gave you, motion units, chunks, utterances, breath units, they all have defining marks and singles. I can define them. There's no operational definition of a word. Yes. Or a sentence, for that matter. There's never been a definition of those because they refer to writing units and writing units are inventions. They're just, they're invented. They're not discovered. They don't reflect aspects of speech. It's very important to note what's going on. Just briefly, what are the units that neuroscientists have identified and how, how did they go about it? That was my question. What are, the, <laughs> what are these units, these neural units? What are they? This is very exciting stuff. If I put it in non-technical terms, in the human brain, pools of neurons fire together, and in various areas of the brain, they create oscillations. So what happens when you present a signal, like a speech signal? Well, these oscillations, they entrain to certain aspects of signals. And so you can sort of say, well where the units are that they're processing. And guess what? <laughs> what do they entrain to? Actually, when you look at activity, when you record activity in, in the auditory cortex, the waves are entraining, the oscillations, these neural oscillations, entrain to syllables and marks of chunks. Hmm. What the mapping problem is, is that we have a tradition of analyzing speech through letters, words, sentences, and Latin grammar, but it just doesn't correspond to how we are processing speech from signals. And this might surprise you. Oh, I'm, I'm blown away. If you look at the history of linguistics, you get founding figureheads like Saussure, who never recognized words. He never recognized words. Bloomfield, why didn't he, why Saussure? Well, if Saussure was a philologist and he was working on ancient languages and uh, there were no spaces there. <laughs> and it was actually forbidden to talk about words. And Bloomfield on the American side, he's, he's also a figurehead. He was working on native languages of the Americas. And he warned that some of these languages, it was impossible to divide words. So the idea of words came in, say, in the 50s, 60s, with artificial intelligence. It was beginning 
work in artificial intelligence, and most of the work was on symbols, you know, written symbols and uh, written sentences, in fact. So the history of words and the history of linguistics is tied to transcripts. Yes, I understand completely. Let's switch completely. Uh, longest words, uh, which don't exist, of course, because words don't exist. I read that the names <laughs> of chemical compounds can run to hundreds of thousands of characters, hundreds of thousands <laughs> of characters. I, I read somewhere that the giant protein Titan apparently has a formal name or, or, or a systemic name of 190,000 letters long. Uh <laughs> So does does that that systemic name of the protein Titan does it count as a word or or is it just something else or is this all totally irrelevant in the light of what you've been telling me about um, the way the brain processes speech? You have to recognize that we chunk speech, but when we use speech, we can the basic units are chunks, but you can actually memorize a series of chunks, and you can depending on language you can build these they're called compounds but they're essentially a series of chunks that you can bind together right. depending on, on language so you have things like railroad bus stop and germans can have up to seven i think uh, such lexemes you call them lexemes because they, you, you find them in in dictionaries we can make these compounds or formulaic expressions with just about anything take it or leave it but you also have things like a, a whatchamacallit <laughs> okay but the thing is is if you look at language and you're trying to identify words you don't know what's going on we're chunking and we can have this in long-term memory we have series of chunks and long-term memories that combine together but the idea that these are words. You have to realize that in some languages, they're not binding together lexemes. In fact, some languages, inuktitut, for example, there are a series of affixes. And for for your listeners, what is an affix? Well, if you think of a mulberry, okay, and a raspberry, if you take the part mul, okay, that's relatively meaningless or rasp. It mm -hmm. becomes meaningful when you put it with berry, okay, a mulberry and a raspberry. That's fine. But the, the affix mul is pretty well meaningless. Yes. Well, what happens is polysynthetic languages is you have only series of affixes that become meaningful when you complete the utterance. There's no root or stem like berry, okay? How did you learn these languages? Well, you know, there's a lot of studies of these languages, and they operate similar to the learning of French, English, and European languages that it, we, we work with small chunks and build from there, okay? And it's the same process. We have a constraint on short-term memory. Basically, what are the constraints that shape chunks? The optimal three units when you get into four and five, that's pretty well the the limit. Okay, and that's and that applies across all languages and all cultures. I imagine yes. that. Yes, it does. So that doesn't mean that you're only going to create units of five because you can string along these chunks, make compounds or whatever. But the idea that we're stringing along words, that's not universal. We can create compounds, but there are languages 
where these compounds don't contain words. They can be affixes, meaningless affixes. I remember going to a conference of artificial intelligence where these people were scratching their heads and how to create dictionaries for languages like inuktitut. Mm. Well, you can. You know, we, we take words and dictionaries for granted, but there are some languages where you cannot create dictionaries. What would you have for inuktitut? Well, basically, you have a dictionary for every damn utterance you can produce. Isn't you know? that fascinating? I had no idea. Okay, we have dictionaries, we have Latin grammars, and we, we, we think we can apply that across the board. I remember a professor, his name was Lowe, and he wrote a book called Linguistique et Ethnocentrisme. And I didn't know what he meant by that till much, much later. When I picked up the book again, and he was describing inuktitut. And just imagine what our grammars would look like if we had, instead of European languages, we worked from a language like inuktitut, completely different. So the title was well chosen. Give us that in English, can you? Yeah, it's linguistics and ethnocentrism. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Paul Sanger was talking about the uh, the effects of the increasing diversity of, of researchers now that uh, are dispelling that sort of Eurocentric view of linguistic reality. Yeah, very nice, very nice. You're interested in overcoming the bias towards the written language in analyzing the oral. And I read that in your lab, you observe the aerodynamic and kinetic aspects of speech. Uh, so intriguing to me. T tell me a little more about the aerodynamic and kinetic aspects of speech. Basically, I use all the tools that I can put my hand on to understand what are the constraints on the sensory motor systems that we use to communicate. So everything that you know it has to do with speech. The, what are what is speech? Well, you produce sequences of motions to produce sounds. And so constraints on these motions, these sequences of motions, create structures and units. So anything that I can that can help me understand what these constraints are, they help me understand what the building blocks of all languages are. For instance, you spoke to you about motion units. Well, motion units give rise to syllables, but we think of these of syllables as collections of consonants and vowels, and that's not how it works. No. I use things like electrodes to see if we're sending signals, the brain is sending signals while we speak to muscles. When does that signal start? What are the sequence of signals that we send to muscles so it does to produce syllables. And are there, are there such things as consonants and vowels or letter-like units? And there aren't. They disappear, huh? All the signals that contract muscles to produce a whole syllable, they all occur at once at the beginning of a syllable. You know, you can feel this. You don't have to have electrodes, but if you say slowly things like, to and t well 
when your tongue tip touches the palate for t, your lips are rounded for oo, and uh, your tongue body is also, you know, in place so that when you release, you get the oo. But why does the oo sound follow? Well, it so happens there's no signals. Okay, mm. this is all passive. When I was yeah, when I was taking the International Phonetic Association Certificate of Proficiency mm. uh, fifty years <laughs> ago, I remember that one of the exercises that fascinated me and that I got quite good at was to describe the physiological sequence of events, and quite clearly describing a sequence of physiological events that give rise to a to a word, it's a, it's just a complete uh, illusion, isn't it? There is the illusion of letters in those examples. If you say to or true, very slowly, you realize that when your tongue tip is touching the palate, the rest of your tongue takes the shape and your lips are protruding at the same time, all at the same time. Mm. Why is there this delay for ooh and when there are no signals coming in? That's fascinating. That, those delays are actually caused by muscle tissues and their types. And some take a long time to contract and a long time to relax. All muscles are contracting for single syllables at the start, and then you relax the muscles and you get two or true because even combinations of consonants, are, you, you, all the signals come in for one syllable. That's an example of the type of tools that I would use to see just what units are there. You end up by saying, well, if I had to create a writing system, I'd refer to these syllables. And this brings back the point of alphabet uh, writing, and it's an invention. All writing systems are syllabaries. The real exception in there, and for reasons that have nothing to do with speech, is the Greek alphabet. These guys adopted an existing syllabic system, which was an abjad, and they added symbols. But instead of adding symbols over, under, within as a diacritic no they added a letter next to it and there you go a tradition of alphabet writing so it's an exception perhaps a mistake you're aware of kata signs or katakana signs in japanese well these are syllabaries mm. and you know what these children pick up kata before they go to school yes we spent years trying to learn alphabet writing. But these the children learn these kata signs, syllabaries, before they go to school. They're quite easy. You're a complete subversive, Victor. Do you know that? You no, just, no, my foundations are crumbling as, as we speak. <laughs> I love it. One final question. Um, most of my listeners aren't linguists. Uh, but many are spoken word professionals, actors, audiobook narrators, academic lecturers, politicians, people who talk for a living. Do, do you have any insights into the rhythm and music of speech for them? 
And we did a test involving, we presented, okay, lexemes, words like, lexical words, like you find in dictionaries. We presented these, we did two experiments, okay? We presented words and we asked people, okay, just repeat the word just by, in your head, and then we presented another word, a set of words, so repeat the words, lip-syncing, syllable, just make the movements with your lips. Other series of words, we asked them to uh, say the word out loud. And another set of words, this set of words, whenever you see this, say the word out loud when looking at someone. So these were all in random order, okay? These were, they were presented with words, and they either had to uh, say them silently in their heads and uh, or, or say them out loud or lip sync them. And then after the test, we presented a list of words and say, well, pick out the words that you think you've said, okay, you, you remember saying. The, the words that were said silently weren't produced at all, had about the same level of recall. Hmm. But those who were lip synced were a bit better, and, and significantly so. Those that were said out loud were still better, but the best were said out loud while speaking to someone. A transitive act, in other words. They were communicating to someone. Communicating, yes. So the second set in, in, in the second experiment were non-words. And there was no difference. There was no mm -hmm. gradation. So what the speakers were doing when they were producing these words, they were activating long-term memory because it didn't work for non-words. Non-words were not in long-term memory. So they were activating motions that linked to existing words in memory. In other words, the units that were, that were in long-term memory were coupled to motor actions. And the fact that the recall was best for actions that were produced while talking to someone says that when you memorize verbal expressions, a lot of the context in which you use words is also in memory. So yes. if I had something final to say to those people who are trying to recite text, uh, trying to learn language, trying to learn dialects. Well, when you produce language and speak to someone in context, mm -hmm. you're maximizing that sensory information that's going to couple with motor aspects of speech, and you benefit memory to the extreme. If you repeat them silently, you don't create motions. This is really a common experience. If you say a word out loud, uh, it's, you know, recite, you, you have something to learn or you want to recite a text. Well, it's best to say it out loud, but it's even better when you say it out loud to someone. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Now, that's a, that's a real takeaway from this conversation. That's going to be the major takeaway, I think, because <laughs> I have a lot of clients who are who uh, find uh, memorization very difficult. Yes. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, that's a good place to um, draw our conversation to a close. So thanks so much for joining me, Victor. I really enjoyed it.
Thanks, Paul. I enjoyed it also. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Victor Boucher. To learn more about him and his work, go to paulmeyer.com, choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar, and click episode number 72. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on X at Dialect Paul. Join me again next month. My guest will be Betsy Evans, the new executive director of the American Dialect Society. She'll talk about her own work on attitudes to language variation, think most popular and unpopular accents, as well as the fascinating story of the Dialect Society itself. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs> <laughs>